Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And there's a couple of things I have to note. Uh, when we read that passage in Ezekiel, um, something I always find interesting is that uh, Ezekiel didn't just say they were dry bones. He said they were what? They were very dry. And I told Sandra just now, I was like, you know, I find that so odd that he had to say they weren't just dry, they were very dry. And she kind of laughed. She said, yeah, they were like super dead. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, I mean, not just dead, super dead, like dead, 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 right? Um, the other thing I, I love about that passage is imagine for a moment you're Ezekiel and you're seeing this unfold before you. I mean, could you imagine the depiction that would be watching these bones just begin to, all of a sudden you see flesh forming and all these things are forming and all of a sudden now it's a, it's a living person. I mean, just imagine for a moment that how God could, would do that. And it's amazing because we think, man, that's just such an amazing picture of new life in Christ. It's like exactly what it is. And I've always thought that in the same way Ezekiel would be in awe of that, just in awe of God's ability to bring new life into dry bones. I kind of think that's what maybe the angels think when they see us come to new life in Christ. It's because they can't really understand as far as they've never received that same gift of redemption like we as, as God's crown of creation has received that. And I wonder if the angels are like, this is so insane. I, I, can't, I can't get how God does this. I mean, how does God take this dead, dried, just worthless carcass and by the moving of God's spirit and the redemption through Christ, we are made a new and living creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to see how we can be born again and given that new life. And I, I love what Pastor Greg said. Let's live in a way that reflects that new life. Uh, let's not live as dry bones. Um, and I know sometimes we're tempted to do this. Uh, let's live at, in Christ, in that new creation. And so um, Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, we're going to get there in just a minute here. I don't usually bring water up here, but everybody knows by now probably my two favorite times of the year are spring and fall. It's total sarcasm. Worst times of the year. Can anyone guess why? Those of you that said that, you know because you're sitting there popping Benadryl, right? Your eyes are itchy, right? Uh, yesterday, I decided it'd be a good idea to burn my way to... Okay. This thing was stuff was... There was rabbits that had condominiums in there. Um, there was a groundhog that was like subletting the, the one area out to another rabbit. It was crazy. I mean, it was like a little community in there. And I thought, okay, this is, we're done with this. And so I decided to spend pretty much all day yesterday playing around in that. And so you can guess last night before bed what I was dealing with in this morning when I woke up. So um, if I lose my voice or if I just start sneezing uncontrollably, uh, I'm going to have probably Jeff Proctor come and just finish the message, um, which I'm sure he would love to do. And uh, see, so he came back in. I thought he was leaving, but he was coming back in. So I was like, awesome. Um, but we're finishing up this morning uh, our talk from last week. So last week we started this idea of what would God say about prayer? And so I'm going to read the passage we opened with last week and spend just a few minutes kind of reviewing and getting some new stuff. And so this is the last conversations with God 
message. This is the last one. Uh, next week, we have Appreciation Sunday, which we're so excited about. And so we've gone through now, um, I think this is the eighth week um, of the series. And so again, if you've missed any of them, you can get them online on the app and all those things, which all that's on the, in the bulletin as well. Um, or you can go to the Welcome Center. And so let's just read this verse together, and then we'll kind of see where the Lord leads. And it came to pass that he was, as he was praying in a certain place, when uh, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And we said this last week, but we have to note it again. This is the one thing the disciples asked Jesus for him to teach them. They don't say, teach us to preach, teach us to heal, teach us to do this, teach us to do that. Now, Jesus taught them many things, okay? I'm not saying that Jesus only taught them one thing. But the disciples made a connection, and we got to touch on this just from last week. They made a connection between the public ministry of Christ, all that he did for God, the private teachings of Christ that they had interaction with in different times, and they connected that to his prayer life. They saw a direct correlation between the time he spent with God the Father and the things God did through him, and he did himself as God, that they understood there's a power in this prayer life, and we want to know how to pray as, as you pray so we can see God do these things in our lives as well. And so it's so important we understand. And I asked you last week, and I'll ask it again. You don't have to answer out loud, but have you ever stopped and actually asked God and said, Lord Jesus, would you teach me how to pray? Not how does the church pray? How does this person pray? How does that person pray? We can learn those things, and that's great, and that's good. But have we ever stopped and said, God, I want to learn how to pray like you prayed? By the way, like he does still pray for us, Amen. He's on the right hand of the throne of the Father interceding, praying for us. And so I just encourage you, if you've never spent time saying, God, teach me to pray, and you might say, well, how can God teach me to pray? I can't hear from God audibly. He, he reveals it in his word. We can read the very prayer of Christ in John 17. We see some key things that he unpacks. We see the prayers of Paul later on in the epistles and some things that he prayed for for the church under the direct supervision of the Holy Spirit. So have we stopped and said, God, I want to pray like you want me to pray. Teach me to pray. Now, again, remember, the model prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's nothing wrong with praying that prayer, but sometimes I think we think, i got to pray that exact prayer. Some, even some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have fallen into that. They just pray the same prayer. Again, if you mean the prayer, and it covers your heart's expression of what you are asking of God to do in your own life and the lives of others, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great prayer, actually. I mean, could you imagine going into your workplace tomorrow and saying, Lord, I want your will in my workplace to be for me the same as it is in heaven. And that's a powerful prayer when you think about it. I want the will of God to dictate my every day. But we're not roped into that prayer. We don't have to pray just that prayer. It's just an example. It's a model of prayer. Then you go to John 17. You see the very, real quick, let's review, and then we'll get into some new stuff. And so uh, we talked last week. If you took notes, hopefully you did. Uh, we talked about the very first thing. If we were sitting here with God, if he was able to have a conversation with us and we could ask him, what, teach me to pray. What do you think about prayer? What's the point of prayer? Uh, we said last week the very first thing he would point out is prayer is foundational. Prayer is foundational. For time's sake, I'm not going to go to these verses that we went to last week, but I'll give it to those that maybe weren't here. You can write it down, take notes, and obviously I encourage you to study it on your own. So prayer is foundational. We see this in Mark 11:15 15 through 18. 
This is where Jesus cleansed the temple and he drove out the money changers that were cheating people. And again, I encourage you to, to research that. Um, but Christ in that moment stated the very core purpose of the temple. He says this is supposed to be a house of preaching, right? No. House of music. No. Yeah, you guys keep saying it. House of prayer. House of prayer. He defined the temple as a house of prayer. Now, you might think, well, that's Old Testament. We're going to see in a moment. It doesn't change. So this temple was a house of prayer. And was it just for the Jews? He says, for all nations. And that word nations is the word ethnos or people groups, family groups, language groups, however you want to define it. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a symbol of a relationship with God, but also we want the other nations to know this and to come in relationship with the Father. So it is stated as a purpose of the temple by Christ, a clear foundational purpose, but also we see it as foundational in the church. It was emphasized in the church numerous times. I'll give you two examples. Acts 2.42, that it's listed along with the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread. It's listed as, as just as important as the rest. And then Acts 12.12, 12, we see prayer being talked about because when Peter was in prison, the church gathered to pray. Uh, it's amazing to see that. The church knew Peter's in prison. What we have to do is we have to pray. We have to ask God to intervene in this. We see that God does intervene. But it's amazing to me that Peter knew, this is the other part of that, Peter didn't wonder where the church was. You're tracking with me? Peter didn't have to go, I wonder where the church is. He went to where they were gathered together praying because he knew that's what they would be doing. That's a powerful testimony of that church. That when hard times come, they run to prayer, not to self. And we talked about this last week, that it's emphasized in the church. I made this statement. I think it's still true today. I truly believe that a praying church may not be the biggest church numerically, but it will always be a Christ-centered church. A praying church may not be the biggest church numerically. It may or it may not be. That's not really the sign of a praying church or the key in a praying church is the numbers. But a praying church will always be a Christ-centered church. The Word of God is our base. The Word of God is our foundation. And Christ graciously builds upon it our church through prayer and submission to his will for his glory. So it's all interconnected. We can't have one without the other. So we covered last week that, that prayer is truly foundational. It is, it is crucial in the Old Testament temple and worship, but also in the New Testament church and worship. It's a key part of worship. And so I asked this question, how many of us would say that we look at our prayer life as an act of worship? Where we actually come into our prayer time and we actually see it as a time to worship God, not just to ask for things. Now, you can ask requests of God, of course. He, as a good father, he wants you to come. But our primary goal isn't just to go to God and ask for the laundry list of things he needs to do. Some of us do that and we think, God, if you love me, you would do these things. Well, God already proved his love to us. How did God prove his love to you? By giving himself on the cross. He doesn't have to prove his love to you, by the way, but he chose to in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Christ died for me. So he shows us his love. So prayer is foundational, but what prayer is not, prayer is not rubbing a magic lamp. It's not rubbing a magic lamp and getting three wishes. It's not prayer. Uh, they aren't wishes. They are prayerful requests. So we come to God in worship. We acknowledge who he is. 
something I tried to start doing years ago. I don't always do it every time I pray, but I try to do it. Is I try to take the first 30 seconds minute of prayer. Because what's a habit in, you think, a Christian's life that prays often? Uh, usually we pray before meals, right? Not usually the most theological prayers. Not a lot of depth usually to the pre-meal prayer, is there? That's fine, but what motivates us to pray short before a meal? You bow over a plate of food. Do you ever think about this? Like, if you want a good long prayer time before a meal, pray before the food gets there. Because if the food's underneath your nose and you bow down, oh, have... Thank you for this food, amen. Right? We got to get to that food. But when you think about it, I love to take the first little bit of time and just not run right into prayer. Do you ever find yourself getting, getting into a time of prayer and you're about three or four sentences in and you realize, what did I just say? You ever, has this ever happened to you? Maybe I'm the only one, but it's happened to me a few times. Where I just have in my mind the way I start my prayer every time. By the way, it's always let us pray. I don't know why I always say that. Okay, let us pray. And I usually have the same beginning to my prayers. And I have the same, I mean the same ending because in Jesus' name. But, but you, you ever start praying and then go, whoa, I haven't even acknowledged you yet. Like I haven't even thanked you for allowing me to come before you in prayer. I haven't even acknowledged that the only reason I can pray and you hear my prayer is because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so my challenge to all of us is in just a little side to just acknowledge who God is. Just thank him that he's even allowing you into his throne room. Have you ever thought about that? When you say, Heavenly Father, and you bow your head, or your eyes are wide open, you are ushered into the very presence of God. And we're just shooting off the laundry list, and he's just, and he receives it in Christ. I'm not saying he gets mad or anything. I'm just saying, man, I think it could be a more worshipful experience when we stop to acknowledge why we're even able to pray. And just acknowledge, God, thank you for prayer. I mean, have you ever just stopped and thanked him that he listens to you? Think about it. Not only does he listen, he responds. That's powerful. So I want to encourage you, prayer is not something we do at church in a worship service, prayer is worship to our God. It's an act of worship. And so prayerfully we'll understand that. So these are not wishes. They're not hope-sos. They're prayerful requests. In our culture, we hear it all the time. Our prayers are with you. Our prayers are with them. You guys have heard this, right? This is not even a Christian thing. Uh, if somebody passes away, you'll see on the news, we just want to let them know our prayers are with them. That person could be an atheist and has no desire to pray or ask anything of God, but it's just something in our culture. We just say these things. Our prayers are with them. Or even unbelievers will say, I'm praying for this or that good thing in my life. I've had people reach out to me and say, with good hearts, and I get why they're saying it, but, but they'll say things like, hey, can you pray for me and send me good vibes? I can't do both. Now, what do they mean by that? They mean, you know, positive thoughts and all that. It's fine. But it's like we talked about a few weeks ago. This whole idea of good vibes, positive thoughts towards me, that's more new age than it is biblical. Listen, when I pray for someone, I'm not praying God's going to do exactly what they want God to do. I'm going to ask God, this is what they're asking of you. I pray that your will would be done in that situation. Because see, even when we're in a moment of praying for what we define as good, your good may not be God's good at that moment in your life. 
So what we have to do is we have to say, God, I'm going to pray this. And it can be something very serious. It can be, you know, the, the healing for somebody that's sick. And we pray, God, would you heal them? I believe you can heal them, and I'm asking you to heal them. But your will be done. But your will be done. You see, so many people will pray things like that. I'm just praying for good things in my life. I'm praying that God will give me good things. They may or may not know Christ as Savior. They may or not, may not have a relationship. They're looking at God as more of, again, just this genie in the sky. Right? Prayer is like putting money into a vending machine. And I push the button and I want exactly what I put in to come out. But we know, anyone that's been a follower of Christ for a long period of time, you know that's not how prayer works. By the way, we should be thankful that's not how prayer works. I've said this before, but have you ever prayed for something? God said no, and you were thankful years later he said no? We do this all the time. God, oh, why didn't you listen to me? I can't believe you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Now listen, we all feel that way. We all battle with this. But I said it before, God is not an on-demand God. You can't show me where he, is, he says, okay, everything you ask of me, I'll do exactly what you ask. The one verse they go to is, well, if you ask in Jesus' name, he says he'll do it. You've got to take the whole context. It's, if it's pleasing to the Father's will, if it's in the Father's will, if it's glorifying to the Father, then he'll do what you ask in his name. And we'll get to that in a minute, how that happens in our lives. So for both the believer and the unsaved individual, in our culture today, Prayer might be nothing more than the wishing on a shooting star. It's just a hope so. That's also true of Christians, by the way. Christians can treat prayer this way as well. It has become a mere superstition. It's kind of this idea of just, in, and I don't mean this to be derogatory towards the Catholic Church, but it's just something that made me think of this. When I was in college, we would take exams, okay? Anybody love taking tests when you were in school? You just actually enjoyed it. It's okay, you can raise your hand. I see that hand, two hands. Okay, how many of you did not like taking tests? How many of you, the two most terrifying words a teacher could say was pop quiz? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. And I usually would ask, is this open book? Can we open book, open note? And then they'd look at me kind of funny, and I'm like, well, you're surprising me with it, so I got to work both ways. You got to meet me on this, okay? But I, th my roommate in college at the time, uh, who's actually... Uh, does music down in Virginia. He's a worship leader and all that at a church. We used to always, um, and again, I don't mean this to make fun of it, but it kind of was what we did, and it makes me think of this. We would always, right before a test, after we may or may not have studied, who knows, um, we would cross ourselves, and we'd always say the same thing, just in case they were right, okay? And we did it all the time. And like, I started thinking back, like, that's horrible. Like, we should not do that. And so we stopped after a little while, but I mean, you're 20 years old, you think everything's kind of funny that way. But, but I think about that in relation to this. There are people who are just throwing prayers up there, just hoping, well, just in case the Christians are right, just in case God is listening, just in case God wants to do this or that, I'll just throw it out there. And I think it's, it's kind of weird that our culture, even unchurched people, have this idea that God is so loving and so gracious that he would hear our prayers. So that's a good thing, by the way, to some degree, right? It's good that they think God might be listening and want to respond and want to be helpful. That's good because we can tell them, yes, God very much is loving and gracious and wants to interact in this situation, but there's kind of a, a part of this you need to understand, that it's not just wishing on a shooting star or just in case they were right or just, just for a hope so. There's more to it than that. The reality is the promise of answered prayer is not given to every person on earth. 
think some of us need to jot that down. I know I need to understand that. The promise of answered prayer is not given to every person on earth. One author said it well. We need to have a relationship with God. Sure, anyone can call upon the name of the Lord, but having a prayer life, having fellowship and communion with God is a privilege of the child of God. Anyone can call on the name of the Lord. Of course they can. The Bible says they can. But to have a relationship with God, a communion with God through prayer is a privilege of the child of God. The first answered prayer God grants the unbeliever is salvation when they call on the name of Christ in repentance. Romans chapter 10. We'll go over there. I'll just read it real quick. Many of you are familiar with this. It's part of Romans Road. But Romans chapter 10. This is an un, the idea of an unbeliever praying. Romans 10 verse 9. And you might say, well, how do you know this? Isn't the book of Romans written to the church? It is written to the church in Rome. Um, and again, we studied Romans and kind of finished up Romans on Sunday nights, so it's a lot of material. Um, this is not like the Roman church we know today, the Roman Catholic church. This was just the church at Rome in the early church, the believers at Rome. And the reason we know this is kind of referring to somebody coming to know Christ and not just a believer who's struggling is in verse 1. It's pretty clear. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So he's talking about, in context, this idea of the Israelites who don't know Christ. They have not been saved. So you go on from there. He talks about all these things. But look at verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believe unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whosoever believeth on him should not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Is rich unto all that call upon him. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, that here? that's a beautiful promise, by the way. It doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your upbringing. doesn't matter your social status, your financial status, whatever. Anyone can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Anyone can know him as Savior. And I believe that, that prayer of confession, and that's, I do believe this is a prayer act. It's, it's in my heart, I believe that Christ died for me on the cross and he was buried and rose again. And I confess that with my mouth in prayer towards the Father and also towards others. I let others know that I've been saved. And as that's happening, that's an answered prayer to an unbeliever. But when you talk about a relationship of prayer, a communion of prayer, where there's this back and forth and this ebb and flow, that is for the believer. That is for the child of God. It is a blessing that is given to us through Christ. And so we need to understand that in our culture today, that it's just this superstitious idea to some people, but it's deeper than that. It's so much more than that. So the first thing we have to understand is that these aren't wishful thoughts or hope so's. They're prayerful requests. It's not rubbing a magic lamp. It's spending time with God in communion, becoming more like Christ through the work of the Spirit, and then God refining our prayers so that we pray things in agreement with his will. The other thing I want to kind of point out here is we kind of look at a basics of prayer. And again, we're not covering everything to do with prayer. There's so much we could talk about. But one of the key things I think we need to understand is that, that God has the right to say no to our prayers. So we touched on this a little bit ago, but, but that's kind of, I want to spend a few minutes here too. God has the right to say no. So when it comes to the idea of rubbing a magic lamp and just wishful thinking, they're not wishful thoughts and hope so's. They're prayerful requests, and God can say no. God has that right to say no. 
So why? Why does God say no to some prayers? I know some of you are like, finally, I really want to know why God's not answering this prayer in my life. Okay? I may or may not give you an answer to that question. I just want to give you some basics we see from Scripture that if God was sitting here with us and I asked God, why, why do you say no to some of our prayers? Why do you say no to some of my prayers? I think there's a few things, and this is, again, not exhaustive, but a few things we can see in Scripture. So there's kind of two ideas here to why God may say no, two categories of why God may say no if we try to boil it down. The first one deals with me. The second part deals with God. So some of the reasons God may say no to a prayer, some of it deals with me and some of it deals with God. Okay, and then I'll explain how we harmonize these things together. So dealing with me, and I'm going to give you some verses so again, we won't have time to go to all of them, but we'll kind of talk a little bit about each one, and then I encourage you to look it up on your own. So the first one is if I pray with selfish, selfish lusts. If I pray with a selfish lust. James chapter 4, verse 3. It's a great reference for that. If I ask so that I may consume it upon my own lust, God's not going to answer that quest. If it's just selfish, if it's just what I want. Um, if, it, if I'm not showing grace to my wife, 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. You could also say, some have suggested that that's not just husband to wife, that it may also be in just a relationship idea of a married couple. Okay? But the text specifically says husbands to wives. But we'll talk about in a minute why I do think that if a wife is having not the right attitude towards her husband, that may also affect their prayer life. But Peter says, basically, show grace to your wife. Be humble and caring and nurturing, if you will, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So the obvious answer is, if I'm not doing that, my prayers will then be hindered, okay? So selfish lusts, not showing grace to my, my wife, um, unrepentant sin. If there's unrepentant sin in my life, um, a great passage for this is Psalm fifty-five eighteen. Psalm fifty-five eighteen. So unrepentant sin or sin in my life that I've not acknowledged, I've not repented of it. Um, I've not dealt with it before God. So while I'm trying to pray these things, God's saying no to these things because he's trying to get my attention on the sin issue. He wants me to resolve that between him and I first. Uh, also, another reason God says no to our prayers, and it's not really God saying no per se, it's I just don't ask. I don't ask. I don't ask God to work in the situation. So then, of course, he's not going to answer it with a yes because I haven't even asked him. Now, we will understand in a minute here that God does go above and beyond even what we ask. And he does do works in our lives that we never asked him to do. But the point is, there's sometimes we want God to do something, but we don't actually take it to him. James chapter 4, verse 2, you have not because you ask not. Okay? Again, I'm not saying God can't miraculously work in our lives. And all of a sudden we go, man, God, I didn't even ask you to take care of this and you took care of it. That's just God showing common grace. That's just God being gracious. But there are times that we get frustrated with God for not doing something. And God's response would be, but you haven't asked me to deal with that yet. So I, there's a little bit of a back and forth here. Um, also, unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Mark 11.25. Mark eleven twenty five. If I hold unforgiveness towards someone in my heart, it will affect my prayer life. It will change how I pray, why I'm praying, what I'm praying for. So unforgiveness is huge in this sense. It's a huge part of unanswered prayer. And so let's just put a, a pause right here. If you're sitting there saying, God, why haven't you answered my prayer? I've been praying about this for a long time. Why aren't you doing anything about this? Just with love and encouragement, I would ask you to consider these things. Is there unrepentant sin in your life? 
Now, some people say, well, you know what? There is unrepentance in my life. I haven't really asked God, but I'm still blessed. Like, I, I'm still okay. I haven't asked God because I'm pretty good. I can, this is the American problem. We're a little too independent sometimes. And we build our own castles, our own kingdoms, and then we go, God, I don't really need you. Speaking about the model prayer, how much bread are we supposed to ask for? Give us this for 30 years from now. Nothing wrong with saving. I'm not saying we don't save. I'm just saying we don't have that, that daily dependence upon God's provision. And sometimes I think that's a great blessing, and sometimes I think it can be a little bit of a negative in our lives because we start depending more and more on self. And so our prayer life, we don't really depend on him in our prayer life. So we've kind of been selfish. I got this. I don't need God to deal with this. That's fine. You are blessed right now. Praise God for it. Help you to realize your blessing is just part of common grace. God's just being gracious to you, but that doesn't mean that you're living his will. That doesn't mean you're living in a way that honors him. And God will bring that to point. We'll bring that to, to a point of recognition in your life. So selfish lusts. Are you praying just for selfishness? I want a Corvette because I deserve a Corvette, God. You should just give me a Corvette. Okay? Selfish. I just want this thing for me. I want it so that other people think I'm successful. I want that house so that people know that I'm worth something. If you get your worth from your stuff or your bank account, you're going to be found empty. When you place your worth and trust in Christ alone, when your identity is in Christ alone, and then everything else is just a blessing above and beyond, you will find that when the other stuff is taken away, you're still content. You're still joyful. You're still at peace. So selfish lust. Not showing grace to your wife, unrepentant sin, not asking, just choosing to not ask, and um, unforgiveness are some of the things we see in Scripture that will hinder our prayer lives. So dealing with God. A couple things dealing with God in relation to unanswered prayer, why God may say no. Uh, First one we have to note, God knows better and his grace is sufficient. God knows better and his grace is sufficient. A reference for this, again, not the only one, but a good one, is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. So 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Some of you know right away what the passage is talking about. You've memorized it. You've studied it. Paul asks for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. How many times did he ask for it to be removed? Three times. What does God say? My grace is sufficient for you. That's a really spiritual way of saying what? No. No. Oh, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Yeah, he's saying, no, it's no, I'm not going to remove it because God's grace is sufficient. So sometimes from God's point of view, he will say no to a prayer request because he knows better. He knows what you really need. And by the way, why was Paul given that thorn in the flesh to keep him humble? Because of all the great things God was doing, it kept him humble by God's plan. That was the plan. So God said no to that prayer. By the way, if the guy who wrote a third of the New Testament gets a no from God and we get no's from God, I think we're, we're in pretty good company, right? The point I'm making about this is, while yes, there are things that I do in my own life or, or my heart attitude in my own life that will affect my prayer life, there's sometimes God says no, and it's not because I have unrepentant sin, selfish lust, unforgiveness. It's merely because God knows better. That's so hard, isn't it? Can we just be real for a minute? Sometimes you pray something that you really believe is God's will. God, how can this not be your will? I look in Scripture. It seems like this is what you would do. And he says no. So if we're being real, it's really frustrating. Anyone there? It's frustrating? Could it even be a little 
like maddening. It's a little, it makes you angry. God, this has got to be your will. So what we do with that frustration, we say, God, I trust that you know better. And help me to really believe that now. We can say it, now we got to really believe it and actually trust in that. So one reason from God's point of view is that he may know better and grace is sufficient. Um, basically, the idea there is a no may also bring him more glory than a yes. A no may bring about the glory of God in a greater way than a yes would. And again, he knows better. Good example of this. I didn't give you the passage. I didn't reference it. Many of you know the story. And I don't know that he prayed to get out of prison. I don't know. It doesn't say. But when Peter's in prison in Acts 12, right? We referenced that already. Does God set him free from prison? It's how he goes to the church and rejoices with the believers. When John the Baptist is in prison, does God set him free from prison? Nope. He ends up dying a martyr's death. So why does God do that for Peter and God doesn't do that for John the Baptist? I got to believe. I mean, kind of maybe go with me a little bit. I'm just kind of assuming this, I guess, openly admitting it's just my opinion. I got to believe John maybe prayed, God, would you set me free from this prison? By the way, why was John in prison? Because he did a really bad thing? Because he told the truth. He told the king, hey, this thing you're doing is wrong. God's not pleased by that. So when you think about this, we have to understand God's glory is on God's mind. That was number one a couple weeks ago. God will do what is best for his glory. God is about the glory of God. So a no may actually bring about the glory of God. Another example of why God may say no is, and we've heard this before, but it's not a no, it's a not yet. Okay? Somebody here needs to write that down. I really believe that. It's not a no, it's a not yet. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, and then verse 13. So I'm going to go there real quick. we got some time. Luke chapter 1. I did something a pastor never supposed to do while preaching. Uh, I mentioned food early in the message. So really, you don't do that, okay? You also don't commit to only preaching for a certain period of time. Those are the two things, like in Pastor 101 class, which I never took because um, it doesn't exist. Those are two things you don't do. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 6. So it says here, uh, and we know this story, but it's good to review it. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Were they perfect? No. It's saying that they lived in a way that it was above reproach in relation to the law of God. Verse 7. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. The Bible says stuff that we read and we go, that sounds so nice. What does that mean? They were well stricken in years. Okay, you said it, not me, Okay. They were older, seasoned saints. Okay, now I'll go to verse 13. It says here, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. So why, do, why are we told that? Why are we told that? You ever think about that? Did the angel have to say your prayer was answered? It doesn't really necessarily change the fact that John was still going to be a blessing in the forerunner of Jesus Christ. I love, though, that God reveals that to us. I love that God lets us know, hey, listen, Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed for a son. 
or maybe just a child. We don't know if it was a son, but prayed for a child. They're getting older in years. What do you think they thought God's answer was to that prayer? No? It's a no. We're too old, right? We're not going to have children. We're well-stricken in years. And the angel reminds him, hey, God heard your prayer. That's such a great encouragement to know that God hears our prayers when we think he's not listening, when we think he's going to say no or it's going to be a no. See, this for them, it wasn't a no. It was a not yet. It was a not yet. So there's a few different reasons why we see God saying no to prayer requests. And there's also the reasons that deal with us. And so, but here's a point. Prayer is ultimately, and we said this already, to the glory of God. So John 14, 13, write it down, study it out for time's sake. We're not going to go there, but John 14, 13 is letting us know it's all about the glory of God. It is so that his glory will be on display through prayer. As we said last, a couple weeks ago, God is all about his glory in all things. Jesus just told the disciples in John 14, 12, that they would do greater works than he did, which is insane to think about. But Jesus meant the quantity of works that will be done through the church will be greater than the number of things Christ did while on earth. And why is that? Because of prayer. Because in Christ, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the power of prayer in Christ's name, the people of God could do amazing things, but not for themselves, but for the glory of God. Why does Jesus say, ask anything in my name and I will do it? If it's in agreement with the glory of God, he will do that because God's glory is on the mind of Christ. John 17, we referenced it a few times. Look at how many times Jesus says, Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. It's all about the glory of God. And so when it comes to prayer, it's no different. So in our prayer lives, we should not be getting so frustrated when God doesn't do what we want because we have to go, but God, your will be done for your glory. And when we start having that mindset in our prayer lives, I truly believe we'll have much more peace and contentment in our prayer lives. We'll stop getting so worked up about things and we'll realize that God is in control and God is working. Let me note this real quick as well. When we talk about these things that we battle with, unforgiveness, um, selfish lust, unrepentant sin, it's not a, a give and take. It's not, okay, Lord, I'll repent of this sin so that you'll answer my prayer request. I'm sure nobody here has ever made a deal with God, right? Nobody here has ever said something like, God, I'll go to church if you do this. Really, what we say is more like this, God, I'm going to church, so you should do this. God, why aren't you doing this? Because I'm going to church. God, why aren't you doing this? I'm reading your Bible. God, why aren't you doing this? I'm doing this. And we have this, this mindset of, I do this, so God is now obligated to do this. It's, no, it's not, God's not obligated to do anything he doesn't choose to do for his glory. So when I mention those things, it's not like, okay, God, I'll do all this, and then my prayers will get answered. Wow, that was loud. It's, God, no, I, I want to live in a way that honors you and glorifies you and promotes you and edifies you. I want to live in a way that pleases you and so that others will see you and me. They'll come to know Christ. And as a byproduct blessing of that, our prayers are not hindered. But I also believe as we draw closer to Christ and we draw closer to the things of God, our hearts are changed. And now my will will align more with his will. So now I don't have to wonder. I'm praying things that are just an overflow of that relationship. It's this continual growth as a follower of Christ. But the key is, again, not for us, but for him. I'll give you a quick example. 
on Wednesday nights this summer, uh, we took 10 weeks and went through a thing called Epic, which was basically just like a, a video journey to all these different places all over the world where God had worked tremendously throughout church history. Uh, England, Asia, obviously in Rome and Italy, um, even here in the U.S. We did make the list, praise God. Um, but this author and pastor, Tim Challies, went all over the world um, and looked at all these different stories of how people were used by God to do great things. And what's amazing is not every single time, but a lot of the times, the individuals that God used greatly when they came to the end of their life, they requested that they would be buried in a nondescript grave with not even, in some cases, a headstone. They didn't want any marker, anything to symbolize who they were, humanly speaking. They didn't want any attention, even in their death. Now, people have done, that; they did mark the grave in some way, and people do visit those sites and so on and so forth. But why in the world would they make such an emphasis to say, please don't put a marker, don't put a pillar, don't put a big thing. I don't want people to come in to see my grave. Because they would tell you, as they did in their written request of things, it's not about me. Nothing I did on planet Earth was about me. It was about the glory of God. It was about promoting the things of Christ. And it's amazing to me how many times we saw that over and over again. That humility that these individuals had, that's why God did such great things in their lives. When you think about God's moving in our lives, but do we put his glory first and foremost? Or do we put our convenience and our comfort and our wants in the, passenger, or in the driver's seat and his glory is in the passenger seat or maybe sometimes even in the back seat? Or is it even in the car? Do we even think about the glory of God as being an emphasis of this point? Another thing I want to encourage you with, and it is an encouragement, when you pray for someone to be saved, I'll use this as an example. You're praying for that lost loved one to come to know Christ. You're praying for God to do a great work. You're praying, God, would you save them? God, would you save them? I'm asking you to save them. I love them. I don't want them to go through the depths of hell. I want them to know Christ. And that person never receives Christ. That, that's really confusing for us. But we have to understand that while God will work in people's lives, God will create opportunities around people, God will put people in people's lives to share the gospel, God will work in all those things, God, as far as I can tell from Scripture, will never remove someone's free will choice to make them do an answer to your request. What God will do, though, is he'll, in, in, in ways that only God can work, he'll work in their hearts, he'll work in their minds, he'll create opportunities He'll open doors of opportunity. He'll, he'll lay someone on our hearts and our minds. And then we choose to respond to that by faith and follow with obedience. But I want you to understand something. God doesn't like, he doesn't remove your free will so that my prayer for you will be answered. He actually works in agreement with that and then opens doors of opportunity and works in a way. And so I want to encourage you when you pray for that lost loved one to be saved, Please don't get discouraged when you're praying for that because God is still giving that person a choice. That person still has to choose to respond to Christ by faith. And so when you're praying for them, and you should pray for them, I mean, we just referenced Romans 10. It starts off with Paul saying, I'm praying the Israelites will be saved. But what do we read later in that passage? God's point is, you have to call on the name of the Lord. 
He's working. He's giving them the gospel. He's declaring things to them through the truth of God's word, but it's a choice we have to make. And so I want to encourage you with that. I know we can get discouraged and frustrated, but understand that God is working even when we don't see it. God is working in this world, by the way, even though we don't see it. We see all this craziness at times. God is at work. God is doing something. God is actually doing great things in the world today. How can I believe that? Because Jesus said to the disciples, I will do greater things. You will do greater things than these things. And I believe the church is still doing great things today. So God is doing great things in the world, and he is using believers just like us to do those great things because they are crying out in prayer to God. So here's my challenge to us this morning. Let's, let's continue to be a church of prayer. Let's make prayer an emphasis in the church, both individually and corporately. Let's do it all for the glory of God. And when he moves or answers differently than we desire, we trust that he is God, he is God and I am not. So I want to encourage this morning with prayer that I think if God was sitting here, he would say, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what's going on in your life. I want to hear from you. And I would encourage you, express your heart to him this morning. Don't be afraid to be honest and open with God. He wants to hear from you. And I know you're thinking, man, I always just ask of God. I always feel like I'm complaining to God. I'm always venting to God. He is your loving Heavenly Father, and he wants to hear from you. But I would encourage you with this. Maybe in the venting and in the request-making Maybe you would spend just a few moments of time to say, God, thank you for this prayer relationship. Thank you for Christ's death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection that I can even come before you today. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you never personally received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I will let you know today, God is anxiously awaiting your prayer to be saved. And when you cry to him and say, I believe, would you save me of my sins? And whatever your heart's desire is, he will respond and draw you near to him and save you by his grace. So let's do this. Let's bow in prayer and ask God to work in these things as we have a time of invitation. And I encourage you this morning, um, with your heads bowed right there where you are, there are, uh, or this is rather, an opportunity to spend time with him in prayer. This is an opportunity to confess that unrepentant sin. This is the time that we are trying to give you to respond to what God is doing in your life. If you have something that's pressing on your heart and mind and you want to come and say, God, would you work in this according to your will and for your glory? I I just want to invite you to partake in this time this morning to engage this time with Christ. And so in a few moments, we're going to have you come forward if you desire to. And and there's a place up here in the front where you can bend a knee and pray. Um, I'll be up front here. And if you want to pray with someone, I'll be more than willing to pray with you. There are these prayer cards up in the front that if you have a request that you want to make known to uh, our small group on Wednesday nights that will pray for those things, uh, you can do that. But I just want to encourage you this morning with your heads bowed right there where you are to just spend time with him, to ask him to search you and try you and to see if there be any wicked way in you, to ask him honestly, Lord, is there anything in my life right now that's hindering my prayer time with you, that is distracting from my prayer time with you? Maybe you're here this morning and God has said no to a prayer request and you don't know if it's a no or a not yet. But regardless, you want to trust him. So maybe you would come and say, Lord, I just pray that however you answer this request that I've been praying for, that I would trust you and know that you are good and loving and gracious. Father, as we come before you today, we are so thankful for prayer. 
We're so thankful for the gift that you've granted to your church, to your sons and daughters, that we can have this relationship with you where we can lay our requests before you, we can lay our anxieties before you, and you will hear and respond and lift us up by your grace. Father, I pray that we would have the right mindset in prayer, that we would understand that you ultimately are God and what you deem as good is good. When you say no, I pray that we would be content with that. It's hard, but I know you can give us the grace and you've already given us the Holy Spirit who is our comforter to comfort us in those times. For those that have experienced answered prayer, that they've cried out to you and you've moved in great ways, I pray that they would rejoice in you. I pray that they would acknowledge that it's your hand that is working because every good gift comes down from the Father above. So I pray that we would know that and believe that and be excited to worship you for answered prayer, even when the answer is no, when it's yes or when it's not yet. We're just going to live for you because it's for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We invite you to come and pray. Again, have a request you've been praying for that you don't know what God is doing. Maybe you'd come and just vent and come and pray. Would you respond as we continue to worship him?